Hi, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. I'm Angie Trudell-Vasquez, and Devin Trudell is on sound. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with writer Maggie Ginsberg about her debut novel, Still True, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Welcome, Maggie. I would like to uh, read your brief bio before we get started. Is that okay? That sounds great. Thank you for having me. I'm completely thrilled to be here. Well, thank you. We're happy you're here. Maggie Ginsberg is an editor at Madison Magazine and a freelance writer for the city, regional, and national magazines. Maggie, we are so pleased to be here with you. Could you ground us in ceremony and read the opening epitaph of your book and share with our listeners about why you selected this particular piece? Well, I love that you asked that. I love that you would like to start there. Um, It is actually a... Michael Perry lyric, and a lot of people know Michael Perry, uh, the writer, but they may not know that he is also in a band. He's Mm. a singer-songwriter, and there was a song that I used to listen to and this lyric that just caught me every time, Um, and it is, you hurt me long before you knew me, and I did the same thing to you, Mm. And, and that's from his song, Newfangled Cowboy Way, and I just... I've always been such a fan of of singer-songwriters, but I just thought that was the most profound idea every time I thought about it. And then when I went to to start drafting this book, I actually had this written, you know, typed on my Word doc on page one just to sort of inspire me. Um, And I was so gratified that five years later, um, it it turned out to be perfect for the book still, um, and that he allowed me to use it in the beginning of the book. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you for starting there. It really fits. And I like to start with some kind of grounding for us. So mm-hmm. I, you hurt me long before you knew me. And I did the same thing to you. Michael Perry, newfangled cowboy way. It's just so profa- profound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, um, I would like to start with asking you, Maggie, how this book came to be. I heard in another interview that you wrote from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. every morning before your day job. But what was the journey for this book? Mm. Well, I my day job, um, which is, is still my day job, uh, is as a magazine writer, as a nonfiction writer. And so I have done that for 16 or 17 years. And I just thought that that was what I would always do. And so um, fiction wasn't really in the plans, but once once I sort of fell into that world, I, I didn't want to be anywhere else, and it did feel like falling into a different world. And so I would, um, as part of a course I was taking, a four-month course, I would get up every morning at 5 a.m., and I would sit down at the computer, and I would write, and I would stop at 7, and it was winter, and so it was dark outside, and nobody needed anything, and it was quiet, and um, the kids weren't up. The dog wasn't up. Nobody, no emails were waiting for me from work. And I just would go into this other world for those two hours. And and then I would go about my day. And it almost did feel surreal, like a detached part of my life. And every morning I'd be a little surprised when I would go into the office and that stack of papers would be just a little bit higher. Um, and each day, page by page, that, that story came out. Um and it was it was really kind of a it was just a wonderful experience, honestly. How long did you spend writing this book? Well, that first draft in those months that I'm talking about, that was actually um, in early 2017. So it's how long did I spend writing this book? In some ways, that first draft came came out in um, about three and a half months. Um, but in some ways, it it took. You know, I, I just turned 47 this month, so in some ways it, it took more than four decades. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then um, it went through many, many revisions over the last, um, last several years, really f- over five years um, before it was published just, uh, gosh, last week. Oh, my gosh. That's so amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it still all feels very brand new. It's, it's, 
just out there. And I actually can't believe that it's something that other people are reading now because it's just been my thing for so long. This, mm-hmm. this thing I've, I've lived with in this quiet space. 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. I, I credit you that is really hard to do, but it, it seems magical to get up alone before the world wakes up and to write these characters into existence. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, before we have you read an excerpt um, from the beginning, I wanted to ask about the cover of your book, how, uh. how it came to be, why you selected this particular image. I, I find it evocative and mysterious. Well, the the two of the three point-of-view characters in this book are married to each other. They are Lib and Jack Hansen, uh, and they have been married for 28 years. They've been together for 32 years, but they've never lived in the same house. They've never moved in together. They live about two miles apart um, in this small fictional town of Anthem. And as far as the cover goes, I, I'm sure you've heard over and over again, and, and you know that that writers don't have much say in the cover uh, of their <laughs> books. Um, but I was, but the UW Press did ask me what I liked. And they asked if I had any um, artists that I cared about, or, you know, if I had any other images of book covers that I could show them. Um, but then they took it from there. And this artist, um, gosh, long time ago, a hundred years ago, <laughs> when I got divorced, <laughs> Um, it was, it was a sad time. My girls were young. I was missing them. I have two daughters. I was living in a very small, not so great apartment, um, without, you know, laundry and, and air conditioning and the girls in bunk beds and things like that. And we were shopping at, um, we were just wandering an art gallery in Mineral Point. And I came across this print of a woman and two girls jumping on a trampoline in the prairie. And I, was so moved by it and it was a Wisconsin artist her name was Jamie Hyden and I bought it and I I bought a frame and I hung it on the wall of that you know terrible little apartment Mm -hmm. and I I looked at it every day it really um it really did ground me and and um help give me hope I'm not sure for what just Mm -hmm. that you know there this that horizon was out there with that joy and and um that 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 woman and those two daughters were just fine right? where they were. And so fast forward to um, UW Press asking me if there were any artists I like, I sent them this artist. And I didn't know what they would do, but it turned out that this was an existing piece that she already had. And mm. I know pe- people can't see it through the, through the radio, but it is, the, it is an image of two houses and they are each at the they're each on a hill. It's these hills that sort of make a heart and the two houses are connected by a, a wire of birds. And um, it's just absolutely perfect for the story. And it, and it already existed. And so they licensed that from her um, for this cover. And I was absolutely thrilled when I saw it, not just because I think it's beautiful, but because of the connection that I have always felt um, to her work so um, it was, I'm just so happy. It was meant that. to be. What's her name again, Maggie? Mm-hmm. Her name is Jamie Hyden, okay. and she's in the Driftless, um, Driftless Artist. Okay. Yeah, that, that I thought it was. I thought it was done for the book. So that is amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think most people do assume it was done for the book. Yeah. yeah. That is so interesting. Sometimes things just come together. And I, apparently you were meant to find that picture and, and, mm-hmm. and for it to give you some hope those years. That's amazing. I, I, I think yeah. so. I think so. Well, I'm going to ask you to read now. I was gonna, I'm going to skip one of my questions because I think you've said so much about it that I think we should just have you read. If you mm-hmm. could read from the first chapter um, beginning to page six, um, and then we'll continue our conversation. And while you get to that page, I'll remind people that you're listening to Madison Bookbeat. I'm Angie Trudell-Vasquez, and we are speaking with writer Maggie Ginsberg about her debut novel, Still True. All right, chapter one. Lib Hansen could have made the walk to her husband's house by feel and sound alone, her eyes squeezed tight against the Wisconsin dusk. Three decades spent wearing a path between their separate homes made it all seem a part of her the cool, slim trails of wet grass across her bare ankles as she cut across her yard, the dip of the ditch and the slipping pea gravel edging the county road, 
The chemical crunch of city-sprayed thistles already forcing themselves up through the cracked asphalt at the plastics factory where they'd worked for ages until its sudden closing two years back. The way the air shifted ever so subtly once she hit town proper. Jack preferred driving the two-mile stretch between their houses, but Lib almost always walked regardless of weather. On rare occasions, they walked together. She'd ask Jack once if he could feel that change in climate on the trek between their houses, rising now like bated breasts, cleaving her nightgown to her calves and thighs, her skin still sticky from the fear triggered by tonight's surprise visitor. No, Jack had answered. I think that's something you made up in that glorious mind of yours. Jack always told the truth, no matter if it stung. Poisonous anxiety surged through her as she darted past the rows of warehouses at the edge of Anthem and the newer jumbo cookie-cutter houses tacked onto this end of town like an afterthought, down to where the green ash and white oaks hovered over the older, more reasonably-sized homes, tucked closer together. Her guard had been down. She hadn't seen it coming. But now she felt the recognition sink in sharp and deep, like a bone ache, as if the cancer she'd never had had come back. Two hours earlier, she'd been in the back garden getting after the ruined tomatoes. No matter how she coaxed, those tomatoes did what they wanted, creating a gangly, sprawling, bloody mess. Year after year, the alleged annuals returned and insisted on their boneless tantrums, breaking free from their protective cages and hurling themselves, vine and fruit, to rot in the dirt. This spring, fed up, she'd winnowed them down to just two starter plants, one sandwich a day, the occasional dinner salad for Jack, but last year's stragglers had spread, and now they pocked the tidy garden anyway. She leaned back on her boot heels, considering. It was no longer in her to force them into compliance, and maybe that was the problem. Her days of wrestling things into place were over. When the slow crunch of tires on gravel broke through her reverie, she couldn't quite place the sound. First, she thought it must be the mail carrier bringing a package to the house that was too big for the mailbox at the end of the long, curved driveway. But her favorite old postman had retired last year, and these new kids never bothered. Anyway, it was practically supper time, the mail long done. She pushed the rope of her silver braid over her shoulder and listened, caught a flash of a firefly in the shrub rose thicket on the periphery, a child on a bicycle wheeling by on the stretch of county road that bordered the sloped eastern edge of her property, the faint smell of charcoal and grass clippings, the drone of a mower in the distance, the steady hum of the air conditioning unit. She brushed the dirt from her shins and rounded the back corner of the house, eyed where her driveway met the front porch, saw the car first, a nondescript sedan, before she saw the man climbing the steps. Instinctively, she froze behind the ancient lilac. He could not see her unless he knew just where to look. He was shaggy-haired, clad in a long-sleeved T-shirt and faded jeans, in this heat. She eyed the forward slump to his shoulders as he faced her front door. There was something tweaked about the way he stood, as if his top half was clicked into place just slightly off from his hip socket. She wasn't a good judge of age these days. They all looked like kids to her. But she guessed he was about 40, and although she couldn't make out the details of his face, even at this distance, she could feel his grimace. Steam rose in curls off the paper cup of coffee he held, and his other hand was raised as if to knock. But it didn't move, as though whatever had paralyzed her had gotten him, too. He stood staring at her front door, too hesitant to be a traveling salesman, too casual to be someone needing help. She knew she should call out a greeting. Her resistance seemed more than the simple desire to avoid small talk with a stranger, something older. Just as his knuckles grazed the door, his fist spread instead into a splayed flat hand. He pressed it there for what felt like a full minute, an almost tender palming of the door at eye level. What was he doing? Silly old girl, she thought in Jack's motor oil and molasses voice. No such thing as a stranger when a man needs help. She tucked her head into her shoulder to wipe the sweat from her lips and was about to take a tentative step forward when the man stepped back and pitched the coffee cup at her door, where it exploded in a dark spray. He hopped down the steps and strode to his car, slammed the door, fired the engine, and swung the vehicle around, spinning out in a cloud of choking dirt. Lib held her breath until he disappeared around the gravel elbow of her driveway, skidding down the hill and out onto the road. Toward town, then, she thought, after she could no longer hear the angry squall of his motor. She waited there beside the lilacs a long time to come back into her body, not unlike she used to when things got bad. There was something in the way he'd thrown the cup, as if she were expected to pick it up, as a baby might with his mother. The awareness was already starting to tug at her, his familiar hips, his age, his fury. 
She started again toward the house, slower this time, hesitant, keeping her head down as she shuffled through the rye grass and clover she left long for the honeybees, dodging the ghosts that had begun to drift across her mind. She imagined Jack instead, his blue eyes squeezing into a smile behind the pottery coffee mug he favored, the fine gray hairs that had begun to sprout along his freckled shoulders, the particular gold the maples had blazed 28 years ago to match their rings on their wedding day. When the worn soles of her work boots hit the gravel marking the edge of the driveway, she let her gaze drift up the porch steps. She was hoping that she'd made the visitor up, but it was all still there. Blood rust coffee stained her screen door, pooled in the cracks of her porch planks. The crushed paper cup trembled in the evening breeze. She sprang into action, hosing the coffee from the chipped blue door, from the faded brown planks. The prairie coughed up a wet wind, spraying seeds, blowing the porch swing, tickling the dampness at her hairline. Stooping to gulp from the cold, clean stream of water flowing from the hose, she braced as a fresh fear walloped her. If her visitor was who she thought he was, it was all over. She wheeled off the spigot, wound the hose away, and went inside to scrub the dirt from the holes of her fingerprints. Fixed a buttered turkey sandwich she left untouched, reheated a bowl of soup she forgot in the microwave, put on her nightgown, went through her usual routine, but triple-checked the locks. It was too early for sleep, but she tried anyway. Shut the blinds against the summer, suppertime sky, climbed into bed and pinched her eyes closed, pressed her hands to her face, her breasts, her belly, curled her body into a fist, but it was useless. And there was only one other thing she could think to do. She rose, went back downstairs, pulled her barn coat over her nightgown, slipped on her sandals, and set out for Jack's. Mm, thank you, Maggie. Mm. That is a great start. I, I told you I couldn't put this down. It was it was engrossing. Um, but I, mm, for our you. listeners, oh, you're welcome. I, I love a good book. Um, mm. Why why did you structure it in this way with various point of views of your main characters, all of whom I became very fond of, Lib and mm. Claire and Jack? You know, I it, it wasn't actually a decision that I remember making. I just started. I just started that way. I forget which writer it is, but there's, you know, a, a famous author who has said something to the effect that the first draft is for telling yourself the story. Um, I'm paraphrasing that. I can't remember exactly how it goes, but I think I was just learning the story. I, I wrote chronologically and I just took turns. I could always see the characters and I sort of knew um, what clashes they were headed towards because mm -hmm. of you know, what they each wanted most and, and how each other was in the way of those things. Um, but I was just um, sort of taking turns. And so I would just get up and write from one point of view each day. And then the next day it would be a different chapter from a different point of view. In fact, in this in the first draft, it was many, many, many short chapters. And it was actually the publisher years later who sort of combined them or condensed them, I guess, where there are multiple points of view in a chapter. Mm -hmm. um, but at the start, it was just sort of taking turns, speaking mm -hmm. through each of them. Mm. There, there are so many important scenes in this book, and some foreshadowing that I only realized after reading it and reflecting and preparing mm -hmm. for this interview. And I was impressed with the multiple voices and your ability to depict a man like Jack in such a meaningful and honest way. How, how mm -hmm. do you create characters so alive that they feel real, like your neighbors? Mm, well, thank you for that. I, um, that means a lot to me. I, I don't know um, that I have a good answer. I, I always saw each of these characters, um, you know, they, they came pretty fully formed to me. So it was really a matter of um, just sort of helping them explain to me who they are. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I did have um, some people who are close to me who read it early on, you know, they, they could, they said, um, one in particular said, you know, I, I see you in every single character. Mm -hmm. um, and so I imagine that a lot of, while these people are very fictional, the things that they struggle with and the things that they think about all the time are the same things that I um, struggle <laughs> with and think about all the time. And so mm -hmm. I was just sort of, you know, giving those questions to mm -hmm. these, 
to these characters that seemed like real people to me, felt mm-hmm. real to me, and seeing what they did with those questions, because I'd, I'd love some answers personally as a human. So. <laughs> <laughs> when we, we want our characters to give us the answers. I don't I have to think about I that. think so. I think so. <laughs> I wanted to know without taking a risk myself, yeah. you know, what, where, where some of this was going. Yeah. I'm also interested, Maggie, in how you weave real Wisconsin drinking culture into this fictional account. I, mm-hmm. I see people I know and recognize from my own life um, in this in this novel. Um, so that that to me is interesting. And before you answer something on those lines, can you read um, from page 46 to 49 and while you find it? Um, I'll remind people they're listening to Madison Bookbeat and we are speaking with writer Maggie Ginsberg about her debut novel, Still True. Um, Yes, okay. So this is from Claire's point of view. Um, Claire drove away, making the corner past the cafe and the park and driving along the county road she knew eventually met the highway. On her left, a small double-decker motel shared a parking lot with the gas station. Yet another good-looking man caught her attention, this one sitting outside his motel room door. As if pulled by a magnet, she yanked the wheel and turned into the station. She had half a tank, but filled up anyway, sneaking sidelong glances across the parking lot to the spot where he smoked a cigarette. When she had first entered the cafe, before spotting Charlie with Jack at the counter, her attention had been drawn to a guy about her age just sliding into a booth at the back. The man at the motel got her body's attention in the same way, a sort of subconscious longing she couldn't ignore. She straightened her spine, holstered the pump, and ducked inside the station, hyper-aware of her body for every movement. Inside, she let go a little, softened her shoulders, caught her breath. At the end of the register, next to the lottery tickets and three browning bananas, a bin of travel-sized wine bottles lay like Easter eggs in a basket. She made a beeline and selected three, two red and a white, without looking at the labels. Pump four, she said, sliding the bottles toward the clerk, who did not blink. These are perfect for gifts, she said anyway, smiling as she pulled the paper bag into an embrace. Back out in the diesel balm, she maneuvered the car and parked so that she was facing the motel, where the man was still sitting, a thin line of smoke rising from his hand. Claire considered the small white bakery bag dwarfed next to a new brown sack. Mini bottles in the car. This was new territory. She twisted open the bottle of white, lifted her skirt, and clenched it there between her thighs, the perfect hiding spot until she could finish her coffee, though she'd lost all taste for it. She considered dumping it out the window and using the cup to disguise the wine, but didn't have the heart, not after Kit's kindness, genuine or not. Did Kit ever have a glass of wine during the day? Not enough to impair and never to drive drunk, of course, just to regulate the bloodstream, offset the damage of the previous night, privately bring herself back into balance. It wasn't like Claire was trying to get a buzz. She was just trying to get back to herself. There was a difference. Claire took the muffin out of the white pastry bag and then smoothed the bag across her lap to form a paper plate of sorts. The muffin, she saw, was blueberry. She loved blueberry muffins, but she thought of them as a marketing trick, cake disguised as health food. Kit didn't seem the sort to make mistakes. Claire took the hint and bit into the sugary treat, her eyes fluttering closed in ecstasy. When she opened them, the man was looking straight at her. Even from this distance, she felt the sear of his stare. She wondered what he was seeing. A couple of months ago, when they still lived in Madison and she went to a yoga class, although less and less often as they prepared to move, she'd stretched long and lean into downward dog, then made the mistake of twisting her neck to catch a glimpse of herself in the mirror. She'd been shocked to see her face hanging like a loose mask, her stomach sagging from her narrow hips, as if her skin was the only thing holding it to her abdomen. It had struck her then, as it was striking her now, that she had two selves, that what she looked like on the outside was nothing like who she felt like, who she believed herself to be on the inside. Claire pulled the bottle from between her thighs, pretended to reach for something below the dash, and took a long swig bent over. She dribbled, then choked. When had the gap between who she was and who she wanted to be grown so wide? Where did the years go when they went? She wanted to go back. Rewind to the days before she resented Dan so much, before his easy relationship with Charlie could make her feel so small. Before, for their sake, she'd put off every trip or goal she'd imagined for herself. She would still choose to have Charlie, of course, just delay her pregnancy a bit. Go whitewater rafting, rock climbing, let herself turn tan and tight. Then she might have strutted back inside that gas station, taking her sweet time, letting him get a good long look. 
and she wouldn't have cared what he was seeing because she wouldn't have needed so badly to be seen because Dan would still be crazy about her, desperately waiting for her back home. Dan, it was starting to feel too late. She'd always thought that they'd have more time to find their way back to each other, that the natural distance brought on by becoming distracted parents would close as Charlie grew up, became more independent, that as she became a better mom, Dan, such a naturally good dad, would admire her again. Now her husband felt like yet another part of herself to which she couldn't connect, some other piece that had broken off inside her, some other way she'd sagged away from her own bones. She drained the last of the bottle and tucked the other two inside her glove box and the empty back in the bag, walked as casually as she could to dispose of the evidence in a nearby garbage can, brushing the crumbs from her lap in long, slow strokes. She started the car, pulled slowly out of the parking spot, and toward the man where he sat. As she got closer and he came into focus, she saw that it was definitely him, the man from the cafe. Claire held his gaze as long as the maneuver would allow, and just as she turned the car to pull out of the parking lot, he stood, blew out a stream of smoke, and smiled. It was a delicious, wicked grin that spread from his mouth to her spine, tingling on impact. She whipped her head back to face the windshield and peeled away, forgetting to check her blind spot, getting lucky anyway. Mm. Thank you, Maggie. Mm-hmm. Um, when when did um, the Wisconsin drinking culture and alcohol become part of the book? I understand it was a later development from listening to prior interviews, and I'm interested in alcohol becoming a character in this novel. You know, I'm interested in that, too. I can tell you, um, and as I, I have said um, in some other interviews, that I... I personally quit drinking um, in early 2010. And so, um, you know, being being a person in recovery, um, you just, you become aware of alcohol in the everyday culture in ways that you maybe weren't as aware of before. The things that felt really normal to me before, they really start to stand out when you are trying not to drink in a place where um, drinking is seems to be the most important thing <laughs> to <laughs> everyone everywhere. Um, and so I, I, you know, I've lived in that, in that world for a long time. And um, I honestly don't, don't think about it all that often in, you know, in terms of just these big picture concepts. Um, and I wasn't thinking about it with this book, uh, growing up here. Um, you know, I, I think that I could, I could see there were many instances in the book where people were struggling with alcohol, but to me, those were just like normal parts of their characters and they were all, um, you know, just sort of dealing with it in different ways, lots of different types of people having lots of different types of relationships with alcohol, much like the people in my life. Um, And so I really wasn't thinking about it. It wasn't an an intentional part of the book. And when I wrote the first draft, and actually for several drafts after, um, Claire actually was not a drinker. Um, Mm. And that's, it's, it's, very strange now because that's probably the you know one of the core characteristics that she has today Mm -hmm. but in the beginning she was just unhappily married um insecure as a mother uh you know just sort of trying to fit in in a new town and and missing her job and her friends and just really not doing all that well and you know perhaps making questionable decisions Mm -hmm. um but but she wasn't a drinker and so I one day my agent called and this was after the book had been out on submission and we'd done at least one rewrite and it had been out on submission quite a while and she called and she said um you know these characters feel very fully formed to me they feel very real but there's just something missing with Claire and I can't put my finger on (laughs) what it is and I thought, oh, I don't know. And I went back and, and reread it as I now have, you know, mm-hmm. 217,000 times. Mm-hmm. Um, I asked friends to read it with that, with that feedback in mind. And it took a minute, and I can't remember exactly how it happened, but it finally dawned on me that, oh, you know, Claire is probably an alcoholic. Mm. Um, and when that hit, I felt it very... 
I, I was very sure mm-hmm. that that was exactly the problem mm-hmm. um, and that it was missing because I hadn't wanted to look at it myself. You know, mm-hmm. it probably just, it just hit a little close. Mm-hmm. And so, and because I hadn't necessarily set out to write that in a character. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt some resistance, um, but it was so clearly accurate that it was very easy then at that point to go back and do a revision where I layered in the alcohol and nothing changed about her scenes or her behavior. The story didn't change. It just became that much deeper um, as, as you know, she navigated, you know, thinking about her drinking, trying to hide her drinking, all of the things that, that problematic drinking really is. Very okay. little of it is about the the actual amount of the liquid that you're drinking. And so much of it is about the mental gymnastics and the emotional gymnastics that you're constantly doing to justify that drinking or to question that drinking or to, um, so, so once that, uh, once that became clear, it was very, very easy to write that in. And then her character became, um, much more accurate. It is really hard to imagine Claire not drinking as part of the novel having mm-hmm. read it this at this point. Um, so that's really interesting. I'm just thinking of how you layered it in. And I will not reveal anything because people need to buy the book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I kept thinking, like, you know, I'm turning the page, I'm turning the page. And um, mm. I could see this being a movie. I could see this being mm. a, a TV series, if not a movie, because there's so much here. Yeah. It's, wow, thank you. Yeah, I don't know if anyone's talking to you about that, but um, to well, me... Well, not yet, but the, the lines are open. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to put Caller. that in the universe. Well, yeah. and as someone who, I'm from Iowa, I lived in Seattle, mm-hmm. and coming back to Wisconsin, my husband's from here originally, um, people do drink more in Wisconsin than they do in other states. That's just a fact. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in reading the book, I kept, pushing against the fact that maybe, maybe I drink too much, but I'm like, no, I'm not like Claire. No, I'm not like this. So (laughs) (laughs) it made me question my own relationship and I'm not, you know, I like wine, Mm. but I, um, and I have a lot of things I need to accomplish, but it does make you question your own relationship with, um, alcohol. And I think that's Mm. a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think I think questioning all of our relationships with everything is is a good thing. And I don't think that we necessarily, um, you know, do that often enough. And so um, so that's interesting. There's there's definitely nothing wrong with questions. It's answers I'm afraid of. Um, but questions, <laughs> questions I welcome. <laughs> we often say as poets that the poem will take it the way it's want to. And in this case, I feel like your characters mm. are taking you down paths that um that are really interesting so Mm. yeah um Mm. there is a another section i'd like to hear from um and it's in chapter four it starts on page 53 um it's the beginning actually of chapter four and if you could just read to like um 55 that first paragraph that full paragraph and I will, as you find it, I'll remind our listeners that they're listening to Madison Bookbeat on WORT. And we're listening to Maggie Ginsberg talk about and read from her debut novel, Still True. Okay, uh, chapter four. What's this family night thing again now? Dan called from the bedroom as Claire pressed her flushed face against the kitchen door that led to the attached garage. It's just a cafe I found with decent food just a short way from here, she yelled against the fiberglass door, her voice clattering up around her ears. She hadn't intended to accept Kit's invitation, nor had she intended to bring Dan and Charlie with her if she did. But escaping alone again seemed less doable over the dinner hour. She'd racked her brain to think of an excuse to leave, then hated herself for it. What mother wouldn't want a nice dinner out with her family? They were new in town. They should accept a friendly overture from a local. Besides, maybe the woman Lib would be there, as Kit had said. Her curiosity burned almost as hot as the alcohol in her stomach, which was another reason she needed Dan. She shouldn't be driving tonight. And it's family style, like an Italian joint, he said, emerging from the bedroom. A tiny white tissue stuck to a spot he'd apparently nicked shaving, and a fresh red pimple glowed from the corner of his mouth. He often showered and shaved a second time between school days at work and his frequent evening meetings. She should appreciate that he was taking this outing as seriously, but then why did it feel like he was fighting her? 
No, not Italian, she said, staring at Dan's raw, shorn face. Then, Charlie, let's go. Her son slid sock-footed into view, his head and shoulders hunched over the worn field guide to amphibians he'd asked for on his sixth birthday and still carried everywhere in that backpack of his. Shoes, she said, and he disappeared again into the living room. I guess the waitresses kind of make a special meal for themselves on Wednesday nights, she said. Sort of take a break, even though they're still open. Why would they want to take their break in the same place where they work, Dan frowned. Doesn't seem healthy. Charlie reappeared with shoes on, laces dangling. I don't know, Dan, said Claire, opening the door and pushing Charlie through first. Tie your shoes, Charlie, Dan said, inching the car out beneath the garage door that was slowly groaning open. Of course he'd backed in. Should she be backing her car in? Louie or Roger, Dan asked. Turn right, Claire sighed, deliberately ignoring Dan's oldest joke. Roger, Roger, Dan grinned in the rearview mirror at Charlie, bent now over his shoes, who giggled. There was no good answer. Had it been Louie, Louie, Dan would have broken into song. She used to laugh, too, but the truth was Dan and Claire fundamentally disagreed over what was funny. She used to be more generous with his attempts at humor, or at least fake it better. Now it seemed like a waste of precious energy. Claire sighed, surprised to find her edges still sharp. She'd napped off the outing and the mini bottle earlier, then managed a glass of wine before Dan got home. She'd made a show of sipping from a can of Diet Coke after he'd arrived, waiting till he was in the shower to sneak a second glass. The two quick drinks should have been enough, but she still felt tense and jittery, inexplicably irritable, almost nervous. She leaned back against the passenger seat, forcing herself to admire her sleepy new community. Several storefronts were vacant, but others creatively held their ground. An antique mall boasted squeaky cheese curds and local venison sausage. A brick facade with savings and loan carved across its front housed a funeral home instead. A sign tucked in the front window of the pharmacy advertised fresh bait, and a beautiful old Cream City brick opera house looked to host both an insurance agency and a barber shop. Maybe they could make a go of it here. Maybe they could put a fresh face on this marriage, build off its good bones, make do with what was still there for Charlie's sake. Um, I, get, I get lost when you're reading and I'm in the story again. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, remember, we're doing an interview. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really good. Um, where Thank you. You're so welcome. Where can fi- folks find your book in the Madison area or online? And do you have a website you want to share? I have a website, MaggieGinsberg.com. I also think it's possible I'm the only Maggie Ginsberg, which is unfortunate um, when you're not wanting to be so Googleable all the time. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find. And then I have uh, signed copies at Mystery to Me Bookstore. That's where I had my pre-event, um, pre-pub launch event. And so they've got those. And there are also signed copies at Room, um, one's own for the Eastsiders. Um, as part of the Wisconsin Book Festival, and um, I, I think, I think um, I love all of the bookstores equally. I feel like I, I need to talk about each of my children um, <laughs> equally here when I when I think about the bookstores in in Madison. I am just such a book lover. I'm a book person first. I can't even say I'm a reader first because I probably buy more books than I read. Um, gather all the books around Mm -hmm. so uh i love the bookstores and i love to read and i love them all how's that (laughs) (laughs) i think you've paid equal attention to everyone um there is someone who's missing from our conversation and Mm. jack is missing from our conversation Mm. and i was wondering if you would um, grace us with a reading a short reading from chapter seven Um, because I really enjoyed his voice and what he would ruminate on and and what he would worry about. And Hmm. I found him a really interesting character. I'm glad you said that. I love Jack. Yeah, I just, you know, he seemed like a real kind of guy. And my husband has family in northern Wisconsin, and I feel like I've spent time in urban and rural settings but I think we, would, we wouldn't be doing justice to Jack if we didn't hear him. And this is an hour show, or almost, so we have the time to luxuriate in your characters. Mm. Yeah. That's what's so cool about this show. I love how much time you all take with, take with writers. It's really excellent to listen to as well. Uh, chapter 7. Um, do you know ab- about how much I should read? Um, why don't you um, go to the first uh, full chapter, um, or excuse me, first f- paragraph, right before I bought groceries? How about that? 
Okay. Jack had been surprised to run into Lib when he'd popped into the save right, and as promised, he'd returned home to wait for her to show up. But as dinner time crept closer, he changed his mind. So what if she was sick? All the more reason to take care of the cooking. Jack was halfway to Lib's place when he saw her there on the road walking toward him to town. She'd been coming to see him after all, and she looked fully, gloriously recovered. He pulled over onto the gravel shoulder, cut the engine, and cranked the window down, watched her walk. Woman might be nearing 60 now, but man, she still had it. She wore loose-fitting jeans, worn thin enough to hint at the strong muscles working underneath the denim, and she had on one of the tank tops she liked to layer beneath gardening button-ups. Her long, swinging arms had grown the golden shade of a smoked marshmallow, his favorite way to cook them on the stick, cured by heat instead of flame. He'd like to taste her. A gentle, sandy breeze blew across the dash, fluttering some auto parts receipts that lay there. It was coming up on September, and a faint coolness had crept into the air, just enough to make you wonder if it was all in your head. I'm a lucky man, he shouted out to her, and she seemed to startle. How had she not noticed him yet? Was it not him she'd been coming to see? But then her face broke open into a wide smile, and she picked up her pace, looking once behind her before jogging across the road to meet him. She leaned in for a quick kiss, and he grabbed the back of her head to make it last. Well, hello, she said, once he'd finally let her go. I missed you, too. Where are we off to, he asked, as she came around and climbed in beside him, buckling herself into place. Anywhere you want to take me, she said, leaning back against the headrest and closing her eyes. He took the opportunity to examine his wife's unguarded profile. She looked tanned but tired. She left her long hair loose the way he liked it, confirming that she'd been on her way to see him. But there was still something different about her that he couldn't quite put his finger on. He'd always loved coming together after a few days apart. But today he felt like he hadn't seen her in a month. Hmm. Thank you, Maggie. I, I love mm-hmm. the love between Jack and Lib and mm-hmm. um, and the way he sees her. And I was thinking, I would, you know, I have a dear husband. Um, but the way you describe the two of them, the way he looks at her, I think every woman wants to be looked at like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I love I love them, too. I, I love... Um, you know, that they're characters in their in their 50s and 60s, and there's that heat between them um, versus Claire, who's in her 30s, and there's sort of zero heat between her and her <laughs> husband. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that really interesting. And um, it's funny, I was just, um, I was just re-listening to when Christy Clancy was on BookBeat, um, I think with Stu in December, um, I was listening to that show and she was talking about how, you know, she thinks that, you know, her friends in her fifties and sixties, she said, she said something like, you know, we're pretty interesting. You know, mm-hmm. I think there should be more books yeah. <laughs> when we get together and we talk and we're pretty interesting. I think there should be more books, um, you know, centered around us. And I know that for me, at least, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm just 47, but I feel like I, I couldn't have written this uh, story 20 years ago and I feel like I'm only just starting to really um, think about what's interesting about the people around me and I don't know I think Liv and Jack kind of have that they understand what's interesting about each other because they've um, been around each other a long time mm-hmm. and yet there are also things that at least one of them is keeping from the other mm-hmm. that are you know really problematic yeah no I think you're right um, I'm older than you and I think um, about my friend who is a a poet in her 70s, and she told me, I'm writing the best poems of my life, Angie. And Mm -hmm. I thought, I can't wait to get older and to do the same. Um, And to me, you're right. Could you have written this 30 years ago? Maybe, but I don't know that it would be this good. I mean, part Mm -hmm. of, I think, of writing is studying people and observing and bringing their stories out and I like to think we're the sum of every movie or song or book that we've ever read. It all comes together in some way, just like you finding that art, that painting that mm-hmm. is now the same artist is on your cover. And the mm-hmm. song from Michael Perry, like, it's kind of like the perfect time for all these things to come together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Maggie, we're, we're getting close to our end here, but I want to ask you about your revision process. Uh, what is your revision process? Well, um, you know, I, I did quite a bit of revising and it was always based on, um, you know, other smart readers, um, and, you know, other writers who would read it and, and would say, you know, what about this? Or here's what's not quite working or, um, 
why is this happening? And so really there were a series of, of people along the way that added a lot to this book for me or helped me think about it in different ways. And, and I just kind of kept um, adding layers. I'm not sure. I guess I would say, you know, I wrote the story in a linear fashion. I wrote it mm-hmm. chronologically, but I revised the story um, in sort of 3D, you know, maybe mm-hmm. deep, deeper and, and higher, you know, in adding the, adding the layers. So the story really didn't change, but those, um, those connections just would get a little bit deeper with every pass mm-hmm. through, if, if that makes sense. No, it does. Um, I have a form of revision where all the words go on the wall, and then I look at the mm-hmm. inner architecture. So I was just wondering, like, I don't write fiction to the extent you do, so I was wondering, you know, just if you if you had, like, visual cues or if you map mm-hmm. it out or, you know... I guess those were my thoughts. Yeah. 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 I would say maybe maybe um reading it aloud was a was a big factor. Okay. Um, you know, the the rhythm of of words and the you know, if I was looking at each sentence on a on a line by line basis, you know, then I was thinking of, of poets. <laughs> you know, because you you poets know how to you know, really honor that economy of words, economy of language, and to really just say so much with so little and and make every word fight for its right to be there on the page. And and not just to, to stand alone and be beautiful on their own, but to support each other. Mm-hmm. You know, each each word and each sentence needs to um, support all the ones around it, or it's, it's got to go if it can't be part of the collective. So, right. Um, no, I, yeah. I thought it was very tightly edited, and I was looking. There's not a lot of extra words in this, and I was looking. And some parts do read more poetically than others um, mm. when you get when you really look at it. But you're right. We do, as poets, interrogate every word, actually every comma, period, space, mm. the whole thing. Um, I, I just find the revision process, to me, is the real writing. So I agree, yeah. 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 And adding the depth and, and the texture and the sounds and the smells and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Maggie, believe it or not, um, we're pretty close to our end mark. Um, and so I, I want to remind folks that we are Madison Bookbeat, W-O-R-T. We've been talking with Maggie Ginsberg author of Still True that came out of the University of Wisconsin Press a week ago, right? Just a week ago. Yes. Um, I'm no, I have no idea what day it is anymore, but um, <laughs> it, it came out on se- September 27th. Um, it's it's uh, been time has, has lost all meaning, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful time. Well, I look forward to hearing more about your book, and I would imagine that um, folks will go out and get their own copy. I'm sure they could also get it at the library as well. Um, but I really thank you for agreeing to be on Madison Bookbeat. I think your book is terrific, and I wish mm-hmm. you great success. And if I were to think about who should be in your movie, I'm going to have to start thinking about <laughs> who should play these characters, you know? Like, <laughs> That's just, my my husband does the same thing. He's always <laughs> saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good to voice these things because the more you say them, the more they could possibly come true. Yeah. I like that. I like the way you think, and <laughs> and I really really thank you not only for having me on, but um, you know for having Bookbeat for all of you who who do Bookbeat. Um, it's just such a it's so important, you know, the, to take this time to devote this hour to yeah. each of us is just really tremendous and to just be stewards of of books it's just um it's so valuable and i really appreciate it so much well maggie you're so, so welcome you. and i know as a writer like sometimes you get five minutes you're like what am i going to do with five minutes I need right. more time. <laughs> you mean i've spent five minutes you know like that's nothing when you think about writing and revision and <laughs> i just want to connect with people and madison bookbeat allows us to connect and if someone's enjoying a long drive and listening to this, I think they're having a good time. So mm-hmm. I will just remind us and we'll close out with, uh, you have been listening to Madison Bookbeat. Stay tuned this afternoon for All Around Jazz with Alex Welding White. The Insurgent Radio Kiosk is up next. I've been your host, Angie Trudell Vasquez. Keep it here. Tune to Community Radio WORT 89.9 FM Madison. If you had like visual cues or if you map mm-hmm. it out or, you know, 
I guess those were my thoughts. Yeah. 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 I would say maybe, maybe, um, reading it aloud was a, was a big factor. Okay. Um, you know, the, the rhythm of, of words and the, you know, if I was looking at each sentence on a, on a line by line basis, you know, then I was thinking of, of poets, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you, you poets know how to, you know, really honor that e- economy of words, economy of language, and to really just say so much with so little and, and make every word fight for its right to be there on mm-hmm. the page. And, and not just to, to stand alone and be beautiful on their own, but to support each other. Mm-hmm. You know, each, each word and each sentence needs to um, support all the ones around it, or it's, it's got to go if it can't be part of the collective. So, right. um, no, I, yeah. I thought it was very tightly edited, and I was looking. There's not a lot of extra words in this, and I was looking. And some parts do read more poetically than others um, mm. when you get when you really look at it. But you're right. We do, as poets, interrogate every word, actually every comma, period, space, mm. the whole thing. Um, I, I just find the revision process, to me, is the real writing. So I agree, yeah. 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 And adding the depth and, and the texture and the sounds and the smells and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Maggie, believe it or not, um, we're pretty close to our end mark. Um, and so I, I want to remind folks that we are Madison Bookbeat, W-O-R-T. We've been talking with Maggie Ginsberg author of Still True that came out of the University of Wisconsin Press a week ago, right? Just a week ago. Yes. Um, I'm no, I have no idea what day it is anymore, but um, <laughs> it, it came out on se- September 27th. Um, it's it's uh, been time has, has lost all meaning, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful time. Well, I look forward to hearing more about your book, and I would imagine that um, folks will go out and get their own copy. I'm sure they could also get it at the library as well. Um, But I really thank you for agreeing to be on Madison BookBeat. I think your book is terrific, and I wish Mm -hmm. you great success. And if I were to think about who should be in your movie, I'm going to have to start thinking about (laughs) who should play these characters, you know? Like, <laughs> that's just, what my my husband does the same thing. He's always <laughs> saying that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good to voice these things because the more you say them, the more they could possibly come true. I like that. I like the way you think, and and I really really thank you not only for having me on, but um, you know for having BookBeat for all of you who who do BookBeat. Um, it's just such a it's so important, you know, the, to take this time to devote this hour to yeah. each of us is just really tremendous and to just be stewards of of books it's just um it's so valuable and i really appreciate it so much well maggie you're so, so welcome you. and i know as a writer like sometimes you get five minutes you're like what am i going to do with five minutes i need right. more time <laughs> you mean i've spent five minutes you know like that's nothing when you think about writing and revision and <laughs> i just want to connect with people and madison bookbeat allows us to connect and if someone's enjoying a long drive and listening to this, I think they're having a good time. So mm-hmm. I will just remind us and we'll close out with, uh, you have been listening to Madison Bookbeat. I've been your host, Angie Trudell-Vasquez. Keep it here. Tune to Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM Madison. <laughs>